When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is a best of episode with online meds Dustin Williams discussing some high yield renal questions from our 2017 Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. You can get more great dedicated study prep material over on the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series channel, which is a separate podcast by searching your favorite podcatcher for Inside the Board's Study Smarter series or checking the link in today's show notes. You do not want to miss our featured segments with Med School Coaches Sahil Meta with our Med School Coach Minutes, our StatMed Learning Lesson focused on examination and study strategy with StatMed Learning's Ryan Orwig, and finally our Kaplan Test Prep Minute with Dr. Chris Semino, Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Kaplan Medical. So even though it is a step one focused series and podcast, there is some content most certainly relevant for med students who are a little bit farther in their training or even residents preparing for step three. Inside the Boards is all about focusing on helping you achieve a better score through focusing on test-taking strategy, and strategically approaching multiple-choice questions, which is why we do this podcast and which is why we've produced our all-audio QBank, which you can also learn more about in the show notes here. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing Inside the Boards on social media and with your friends. And by the way, if any of you are Redditors out there, that's been our recent focus. So if you're involved in the Reddit community, I sure would appreciate a shout out on Reddit so that we can get more people aware of the resource that we are providing. This is part one of this show with Dr. Williams. The complete part one and part two can be found on the Study Smarter Series channel. Thanks for listening and happy studying. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. We are back with Dustin Williams. 
are now pretty much a regular guest on the Inside the Boards podcast. He's back for our Study Smarter series to discuss a little bit about renal. Um, If you don't already know who Dustin Williams is, well, then you are wrong. But first and foremost, he is in charge of Online MedEd. That's onlinemeded.org. ORG, which is an online study platform that is, quote, dedicated to changing how medical education is approached, how medical schools deliver it, and importantly for you guys, how students learn it. So you sign up online for free. You can watch a plethora of online videos, which have great reviews, for instance, all over Reddit on the third year kind of clerkship content. But they also have a high quality question bank and a dedicated flashcard app uh, for smartphones to um, get that spaced repetition learning. And as you guys say in your tagline, you're making learning medicine easier, faster and more fun. Those are all laudable goals, I think. So, Dustin, thank you for the third time coming back and doing this with me. Uh, My pleasure. I love being here. I also love getting stumped sometimes, too. It's kind of fun. Yeah. So I I tried to, you know, pick questions that would embarrass you. Like, that was my entire goal in the selection. Less so, um, what would be high-quality learning Good. Definitely a stump the chump. Here we go. Hopefully I'll be able to cheat something even if I don't get the right answer uh, any of the times. (laughs) And that's more or less a joke. I I will say, audience, that no, we are committed to, you know, providing high quality, high yield questions in this uh, in this review series. But renal is a tough subject, I think. I, I, I don't I don't much like renal. I will confess. I was just going to say, actually, you know, it's you're joking, but at the same time, step one can throw some pretty ridiculous questions at you. And I think renal is the one that hits it the most because they have so many details and so many different diagnoses and pathologic findings. And they can ask you so many different things that renal usually seems to be really hard for a lot of people. Yeah, I say that I, I did research in medical school on basic science kidney. I still don't know it that well. Clinical kidney, I got that dominated. Basic science kidney, man, that can be really hard. Yeah, man. Like I, I always think that whenever uh, whenever I was doing rotations as a medical student and you know, you're on the wards and somebody's got some sort of kidney disease and you know, you're getting pimped and you're like, oh, this is obviously nephritic syndrome, right? Because nephritic versus nephrotic is like the binary sense in which you think of everything when you're going through second year path for renal. Um, and then you realize like the uh, the kidney docs, um, they have a different way of thinking about renal diseases than the basic science faculty. At least that was the impression I got. Yeah, I 100% agree. I, mean, I even actually coach people in the clinical sciences to stop doing that stuff. Like in the, first, the basic science curriculum, I say, you know, that that might be for pathologists or like renal subspecialty fellows. Yeah. And it comes right down to it. I mean, cl- clinical renal is really easy. It's pre, post, intrarenal. And if yeah. you're at intrarenal, call a nephrologist, you know, like right. <laughs> give them fluids, give them Lasix, put a Foley in and that don't work. Call for help. Yeah, you know? exactly. That easy, but not for step one. All right, let's get into some questions. This one you'll love because kind of harks back to anatomy, but it's a warm-up. So a 30-year-old man comes to the emergency department because of right flank pain. The pain is severe and began subtly an hour ago, and a urinalysis is positive for numerous erythrocytes. 
Structural examination shows tenderness in the area of the right lumbar, paraspinal musculature, and flexion posturing of the right hip is noted. Which of the following is the muscle that can most likely be used to localize this patient's internal pain? Whew, that is an interrogatory. A, the psoas major. B, the quadratus lumborum. C, the rectus abdominis. D, the rectus femoris. Or E, the sartorius. Okay, so before I even attempt this, I do want to say that I always recommend students read the question first and read the answer choices, and this is a perfect example. All right, the guy comes in with right flank pain, and his urinalysis has got red blood cells in it. He's got, C- C- well, not CVA tenderness, but right lumbar paraspinal musculature. I, thought, I was like, oh, this is a kidney stone. Yeah. And I guess like the lumbar paraspinal musculature thing and the flexion posturing of the right hip he doesn't fit with kidney stones, but I was like, kidney stones, kidney stones, kidney stones, the answer's going to be kidney stones. And then you're like, what, which of these muscles is involved in back pain? Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I don't remember what the quadratus lumborum does. Um, <laughs> the rectus abdominis, that, that's going to be silly. That's like going to be like pain from the front. Yeah, so from be, doing too like, many crunches. Yeah, crunches, right? Or, you know, I think this is supposed to be visceral pain. So I would say more <laughs> things like appendicitis and maybe like a colonic obstruction. So not related to erythrocytes in the urine. Rectus femoris is in the leg. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't know why that would be related to red blood cells in the urine. Sartorius hip flexion. Maybe that one because they tell you about the flexion. Of the right hip, and then the psoas major. Wow. All right. So um, I'm going to pick psoas major because that's literally the only muscle group I've seen ever have pathology in it in the hospital. But I bet <laughs> it has. I bet it has something to do with the course of the ureter or something like that. Because yeah, in my mind, I see like so. Whenever I draw the kidneys, there's like these kidneys and like these kind of loose hanging ureters that go to the bladder, and I don't ever draw the muscles around them. And the psoas major is sort of in there. They're Kidneys are retroperitoneal, and so is the psoas muscle. Psoas muscle, final answer. You are correct. And I think, that, <laughs> I think not only was your um, anatomical reasoning good, but uh, I think the point you made that the psoas muscle is the only muscle of this list that I've ever heard have like pathology <laughs> in the hospital. Yeah, same here. So yeah. I think that's, um, while probably not the type of reasoning you want to rely on too much when taking, you know, your step one, you know, that can be useful. So, so yeah, you're yeah. exactly right as to the, to the reasoning is. So the three most likely places for a kidney stone to be caught are the ureteropelvic junction, the mid ureter and the ureterovescal junction. And as the ureter passes along the psoas major, it it passes along the psoas major until it enters the pelvis, and so it can cause some psoas major inspired pain, as described wow. in this vignette. So, so literally, literally did not know that everyone was listening. I, I, ureter pelvic junction, I got it. Vesiculo, the ureter junction for sure, right? and then I thought actually the trigone of the bladder would be the other next place. The fact that it gets stuck at the rectus, I I, I didn't. I literally did not know that, and I just guessed. Well, the psoas, you meant. Well, no, it's, yeah, it's like I thought, like, sorry, yeah, like I, the, the fact that it was the psoas muscles where the stones get stuck, literally didn't know that. 
Yeah. So the good point there is when you're a third year medical student and you're on your surgery rotation and you can't see into the like four inch hole that four people are operating into, at the very least, just politely ask for a step so that you can see above them and, and try to get in and, and see whatever's being <laughs> operated on in the belly. So that it's way funny you, you say that because I actually never saw a surgery. Like I was asked to stand with the anesthesiologist during a CT surgery rotation. Yeah. And I was in like two belly surgeries on my surgeon rotation. And I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon when I started medical school, not by the time I got to clinical years. But <laughs> so I actually have only seen the inside of humans for the most part on CT scans. Very interesting. That is a fun fact. That's yep. a, we're we're going to start including that in your bio when you're on. Um, <laughs> Dustin Williams, who has only seen two surgeries, but is still a practicing physician, very successful in uh, the med ed world as well as uh, clinical practice. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Quadratus lumborum is just like one of those lumbar paraspinal muscles. I don't. Let's skip these distractors and go to okay. something more <laughs> properly renal. Yeah, so I think so. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to deal with this. This one is perhaps a little, a little more, I guess, treatment oriented. So it's probably somewhere between a step one and a step two question. So a 75-year-old man comes to the emergency department. They're always coming there because of flank pain. The pain began eight hours ago and has persisted since then. He denies nausea, vomiting, fever, and dysuria. His past medical history includes two previous kidney stones, abdominal CT scan, Dustin Williams' window into the body, confirms a three-millimeter renal calculus at the ureterovesicle junction. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So A, hydration, B, lithotripsy, C, renal angiography, D, suprapubic bladder catheter placement, and E, surgical removal. This one's pretty easy. Three millimeter stone. It's going to pass on its own. Answer is hydration. Um, and this is actually yes. a really good, like, this is a really good question, I think. And it's because a little bit of anatomy, a little bit of treatment, right? So and the I know the treatment of kidney stones is going to be based on their size and how, e how um, easily they're going to pass on their own yep. and then where they are. And they kind of, they didn't, and they were thankful not to give a bunch of these other things, um, you know, that you choose between lithotripsy or endoscopic retrograde removal and yeah. stenting, right? So like, that, I think that's too, too advanced for step one. I think this is a And probably step two to a certain extent. I think so. Yeah. Lithotripsy is when they're big, you got to break them up with some sonic waves Renal angiography would be for a, um, I guess, a renal infarct, and that would be pain, fever. Fever, I think, would be the thing here. And you wouldn't see a stone. Superpubic bladder catheter is like post-renal obstruction, and it's only at the level of the bladder, not the ureter, so that's out. And then surgical removal, I guess, they don't make you choose between them, but that's like massive and really proximal. Yeah, exactly. I guess the point of this is just to emphasize the fact that stone less than five millimeters, it's observation, comfort, and hydration, um, probably IV hydration if they're coming to the emergency department, just to help them filter more uh, fluid through their kidneys and help it pass. You know, in residency, uh, we would often give people fl um, Flomax, which for some reason the generic... Uh, Pentulosin. What is it? 
Tantalosin and doxycycline, okay. terazosin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we'd give them that to help encourage passage. Is there actually any literature on that, do you know? Just curious. It, yeah, there is. So it's it's a little bit more complicated than um, less than one, greater than one. It's it's sort of, it goes into, it's, left, it's less than five, and don't quote me on the numbers, I'd have to look these up, but if less than five millimeters, pass on your own hydration. If less than one millimeter, medical expulsion therapy with alpha blockers and even calcium channel blockers like the, the, the peens um, can be used to open up the ureters and help them go through, which mm-hmm. is the only reason in my mind a woman would be on an alpha blocker, typically used for BPH in men. Yeah, so exactly. medical expulsion therapy is, try, is they attempt that when the stone is less than one but greater than five and above one you start getting into methotripsy, stenting, and surgery. Centimeters, correct. Above uh, one centimeter, less than five millimeters. Oh, yeah. Let me just say that again to make sure I say it correctly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if the, the stone is less than one centimeter, but greater than five millimeters, I should probably just say it in millimeters, less than 10 millimeters and greater than five millimeters, medical expulsion therapy. If less than five millimeters, hydration and observation alone. And a greater than 10 millimeters or greater than one centimeter, that's when you're going to talk about lithotripsy, stenting, surgery. Got it. All right. So that one's pretty easy. That was another warm-up. And now that now that we've got through <laughs> these warm-up questions, let's get into something more painful. Okay. More painful than even the uh, kidney stone that these patients in the vignettes are experiencing. I actually, I had a kidney stone in residency, and my residency was so kind. I actually got three hours off, I think, to go to the ER, get a shot of Toradol, <laughs> get IV hydration, and go back to work. And then I got Pilo. <laughs> right? Womp womp. Yeah, yeah that's amazing, dude. <laughs> I know. I know. It was, it was a bummer. It was a bummer. Did they give you more time off for the Pilo? No, no, they just gave me antibiotics. Um, <laughs> so Get back to work. It's yeah, exactly. You, how febrile are you? If your proteins aren't starting to denature, you can, you can still work. All right, so <laughs> we'll move on. My residency was actually not that bad, if uh, any, anyone from there is listening. I, I loved my education, and it was not as bad as it could have been, which actually, I don't know if that makes it complimentary or not. But at any rate. Next, a 23-year-old woman comes to the office because of hematuria for the past two days. She has no dysuria nor abdominal pain, and her last menstrual period was two weeks ago. She had an upper respiratory tract infection a few days prior to the start of these new urinary symptoms and remembers having similar episodes of hematuria in the past, but she never previously sought medical attention. Her UA is positive for moderate levels of blood and mild levels of protein, which of the following diagnostic tests has the highest sensitivity and specificity for this condition? A, a 24-hour urine protein quantification. B, a renal biopsy. C, a renal ultrasound. D, serial urinalyses. Or E, a serum IgA level. Let's pause for a second. I close the window. The dogs are breaking next door. I can't even hear them. And if they do, that's fine. We... We usually don't edit out animal or baby sounds. Okay, so I don't know the answer. The 23-year-old woman, they, they give you the menstrual period, so that's like, it's not that, right? So they're just basically telling you that this is really going to be in the urine and not just a yeah. contaminant. 
Which is actually something probably good to remember, like when you're an intern, I can think of times even as an OBGYN, maybe for like a week, we'd get consults like, oh, you know, like somebody's got like, you'd see like somebody with a, a UA that's positive for blood, or it would come up in your inbox as a lab. And you're like, oh, no, she's got hematuria. And then people will forget that that's actually kind of normal for a woman um, for at least, you know, a quarter of the month or so. Or a little less than a quarter, but at any rate, sorry. All right. And now the, yeah, that's what is true. And then, you know, she's got the URI symptoms and she's had it before. So I, this is like post-streptococcal something, something, or IgA nephropathy. I think I was going to answer serum IgA levels, but then the, you read the question. And the, the, again, this is important while you read the question first. It says, which has the highest sensitivity and specificity exactly. for the condition? And I actually wrote that down as you said it. And then I re- went, went back and like, thought about the question. And basically what they're asking for is what's the best test? And the best test is a biopsy. I exactly. think I would the, the next step is a serum IgA. The best step is a renal biopsy. You are correct. And um, that's like really good uh, clinical reasoning too, because I think that's something you would learn as a doctor, just that like pretty much all of these kind of primary renal diseases are the gold standard is going to be a renal biopsy, like tram track appearance, you know, blunting of the podophilic processes and minimal change. How's that? We get to it later. At any rate, renal (laughs) biopsy, gold standard. Gold standard usually means sensitivity and specificity are the highest of the tests for which diagnostic testing is actually available. So you are correct with renal biopsy. Yeah. And the other ones, I'm not really sure, like they're all good tests. And I think I actually probably would do them all right in a, in a person who came in with these. I want to make sure it's not nephrotic syndrome with the 24-hour protein quantification, though I'd probably use a spot protein. Renal ultrasound makes sense because she's got problems with her kidneys, we think. And maybe you're trying to rule out stones um, with so trying to look for hydro. And serial urinalysis, I think that would be the answer if they're going for, hey, maybe she's on just on her period. Serum IgA, I think, is the maiden distractor because I know it was like some sort of IgA post-strep thing. And that's the next step clinically. Yeah. The best, the gold standard. Awesome. So renal biopsy, yeah. What that shows within IgA nephropathy, which is what this describes, um, because she's got a history of episodic hematuria, the renal biopsy will show hypercellularity, mesangial thickening on light microscopy, as well as increased fluorescence on like IgA immunohistochemistry, which makes sense. And you would have to obtain that via a biopsy. So let's see, IgA nephropathy, it's, it's a nephritic syndrome, right? Perhaps we could talk a little bit about nephritic versus nephrotic because that's a a good um, kind of table of distinctions to keep in mind for step one. Can you help us walk through that? Yes, I can. So basically in my head, there's a tree and I'm trying to describe it. Someone comes in with problems with the kidney and I envision nephrotic syndrome being these giant gaping holes in podocytes so that massive amounts of protein and even red blood cells can get through. And so the, the main thing in the urinalysis is going to be, yeah, there's protein, and, but yeah, and yeah, there's blood, but there's mostly a ton of protein. Yeah. And nephritic syndrome, in my mind, are these tiny little holes that things can be rammed through. So if you've got, quote, blood in the urine and it's from a nephritic syndrome, they're going to be dysmorphic red blood cells because they got shredded going through those little holes. And that's not true physiology, but that's how I keep it straight in my head. Yeah. It's a good heuristic. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's nephritic syndrome, dysmorphic red blood cells, not a lot of protein, 
nephrotic syndrome, lots of protein, and then the syndromes themselves. Nephrotic syndrome is going to be hypercholesteremia, peripheral edema because of the low oncotic pressure and massive amounts of protein. Got to remember those starling forces. Exactly. There we go. Right. That's right. Oncotic pressure goes down and all the fluid dumps out into the periphery. I think that's good for IgA nephropathy. Basically, you see uh, any sort of like URI followed by kidney disease. Like if those two things show up together in a vignette, then you've got to be thinking IgA nephropathy or post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which is, I guess, the two most common uh, things we'd be thinking about in having on kidney. On a test, anyway. Yeah, on a, sure. on a test, yeah. exactly. Another lung disease related to or associated with kidney disease is also very popular on step one, but more to come. So oh, yeah, that, that's actually, it's really important to say it's URI viral pharyngitis, sinusitis, post <laughs> right? Yeah. But if you have hematuria and hemoptysis, that's different. Yeah. If there's gross blood coming from both, then <laughs> more likely a different disease than IgA nephropathy or post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis. So just because there's some sort of general respiratory tract issue with the renal issue, don't fall into the trap of confusing good pasture syndrome, ah, I said it, with IgA nephropathy or post-streptococcal glomerular nephritis. I have a feeling a question about good pastures may be coming up later. That's true. That that might happen <laughs> just because it's so, everybody loves it. It's so good. These distractors, what we had, I think you pretty much covered them as kind of like the rationale as to why we would get each. The serum IgA is elevated in some, but it's um, actually not very sensitive or uh, specific for IgA nephropathy, interestingly. So while done in clinical practice, it is not the gold standard. And that's why you really have to pay attention because think about this vignette. If nothing else was changed and the interrogatory asked, which of the following is the next best step in management of these here, there's actually, it's probably arguable what would be done, but I think most people would probably end up doing a urinalysis first, right? And then probably some sort of protein assessment, whether it's 24-hour protein or a spot urine to protein creatinine ratio or micro looking for microalbuminuria, and then maybe imaging, but like renal biopsies, like that's like never going to be your next step in management. That's true. It's almost <laughs> never the right answer in clinical medicine, which is I think why they've chosen it here. And a repeat urinalysis just to make sure it's real is probably the best answer for the next step. Yeah, exactly. So keep that interrogatory in mind. So... All right, let's move on from there to a 38-year-old lady who comes to the emergency department. Where else? Because of shortness of breath and cough, productive of blood-tinged sputum for the past three days. She has been unresponsive to antibiotic therapy. Her temperature is 38 degrees Celsius, which is technically a fever at 100.4 Fahrenheit. Pulse is 92. Respirations are 18. Blood pressure is 110 over 68. Lab studies show an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate and circulating cytoplasmic anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies, which is happily abbreviated C-ANCA. Urinalysis shows dysmorphic red cells and red blood cell casts. 
Which of the following antibodies is most likely to be found in the patient's serum? A, anti-centromere antibodies. B, anti-myeloperoxidase antibodies. C, anti-proteinase 3 antibodies. D, anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. Or E, anti-mitochondrial antibodies. Told you these were kind of hard. This is hard. Yeah, so this is either Good Pastures or Wegner's. Um, but Cianca tells me it's Wegner's. It's inflammatory. It's an nephritic syndrome with dysmorphic red blood cells. It's a glomerulonephritis with the red cell casts. I was so happy that I got the answer. And <laughs> antibodies. All right. So I know that it's not anti-double-stranded DNA because that's going to be lupus. Correct. I know it's not anti-mitochondrial antibodies. That's primary biliary cirrhosis. Yep. And I know it's not anti-centromere because that's Crest syndrome. But myeloperoxidase and proteinase 3. <laughs> MPO reminds me of something, but I don't remember what it is. And I did this actually a lot on test taking. I wrote, hey, I recognize that one. Cool. I'm going to pick that one. <laughs> and, I, and I almost always got it wrong, but I'm going to stick with my insanity and pick B, antimyeloperoxidase. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. 50-50 shot. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> it's what is now called granulomatosis with polyangitis, the disease formerly known as Wegner's granulomatosis, is associated with uh, C-ANCA antibodies and antiproteinase 3 antibodies, which was choice Literally C. every time. Literally every time. Hey, well, I recognize that. And yeah, that's well, why don't you switch it up then? Why don't you do a... You know, because go- I believe one day it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> that is the gambler's fallacy in many respects. <laughs> yes, indeed. Anti-myeloperoxidase antibodies are are Churg-Strauss syndrome. In my defense, the MPO is associated with the polyangiitis. Had I not learned that Wegner's is now granulomatosis with polyangiitis, I probably would not have made that mistake because like, it's the other polyangiitis disease and with eosinophils. This one doesn't have eosinophils and is associated with proteinase 3. So that's good to know. The two granulomatoses of the kidney to remember Wagner's, now called granulomatosis with polyangitis. No eosinophils. If you have the eosinophils, then you're going to have antimyeloperoxidase antibodies. And it's eos- now <laughs> why they changed the name to something not an eponym, but way more complicated. No one will ever know. But what is now eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis, which just rolls off the tongue, also called Churg Strauss, has eosinophils because it's in the name. Covered all those distractors in very succinct order. So there's a historical note on this. Actually, Friedrich Wegener, Wegener, who described the disease um, in 1936, was associated with the National Socialist Party of Germany. And professional bodies and journals have replaced his name as the eponym with the descriptive term because of his Nazi affiliation. All right, take away his credit on the eponym. And we will stop there. Join us over on the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series podcast channel for the complete episode with online meds Dr. Dustin Williams covering renal. Like I said before, search your favorite podcatcher for Inside the Boards Study Smarter series or check the show notes. And thanks to James from Two O'Clock Courage for letting us use the opening track, which is the Valentine Blast Furnace off 2016's album Missalette. You can check Two O'Clock Courage, the best band you've never heard of, at twooclockcourage.com 
or on iTunes or Spotify. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards, or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.